they're reaching out to us because they do not know how to generate the revenues against the, the energy that, that they're going to be producing, regardless of the market dynamics that they face. Bitcoin is a new way for us to utilize energy and to take that energy and make it productive over vast distances of space and time. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Well, it was bound to happen with institutional investors and corporate treasurers pouring money into Bitcoin and with the NFT art revolution pushing other crypto applications into mainstream consciousness people were always going to raise the energy issue. The idea that massive energy use by Bitcoin specifically and by crypto generally is a threat to the planet is not a new concern. Satoshi himself recognized the problem. But the more awareness and investment there is in the sector, the bigger the hashing power of the network becomes, the bigger its energy consumption, the greater the concern. The critics have a point. According to Cambridge University's Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, total electricity consumption is at a whopping 130 terawatt hours, or about 0.7% of total world consumption. This is just for Bitcoin. And that's their best middle bound estimate. The upper bound of Cambridge estimates puts the total at 442 terawatt hours, reflecting a recent surge in line with hashing power. Measuring this stuff is difficult because it depends on how efficient the mining machines that are being used are, And that can vary enormously from miner to miner and place to place. Miners won't typically share such information with the outside world. The other unknown here is how much of that energy consumption comes from renewable energy, such as hydro or solar. As we'll discuss in the program, there's strong evidence that Bitcoin mining is becoming increasingly green, and there will be increasing incentives for miners to migrate away from fossil fuel energy as the cost of renewables continues to fall for both regulatory and technological reasons. But we don't know the exact proportion of mining that's green. The fact is, most of the world's energy is not renewable. So the idea that this industry consumes the equivalent of a mid-sized European country and is rapidly moving towards that of even bigger nations is not something we can dismiss easily. Now, there are strong arguments that Bitcoin and blockchain technology might actually be a solution more than a threat to environmental sustainability. And we'll get into some of that in the program. But the planet doesn't have much time. So rather than the vociferous crypto Twitter spats over the reliability of metrics or on how people are using apples to oranges comparisons, we need concrete solutions. So let's explore that. To do so, we will tap the expansive, ever-entertaining mind of Meltem Demiris. Chief Strategy Officer of crypto investment firm CoinShares, and Harry Sudok, Vice President of Strategy at GRID. That's spelled G-R-I-I-D. They're a mining infrastructure company that's applying a deliberate strategy to energy efficiency and sustainability in the sector. Can't wait to dig into this topic with them. But before we do, let's greet my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. 
So it's kind of interesting. We're at this convergence right now, Sheila, where uh, not only is there this sort of big institutional corporate interest in Bitcoin, and we're seeing, as we've talked about on numerous editions of this show, the big names of Wall Street starting to get invested and interested in this space, but it's at the same time coming with an increasing demand and interest for ESG investing, right? So companies and investment firms are being held to an ever higher standard as to what their environmental, social, and governance objectives are. And they've got boards and compliance uh, offices and the like that are ensuring that their investments in this space is interesting. So, you know, this is something that the WEF is, is sort of very, very actively involved in. I just think this is a really important conversation. I imagine there's going to be an inherent limit on how far this can go unless this issue gets resolved, at least in terms of the way people understand it. Yeah, well, I think both of these phenomena you're talking about are institutionally driven. I mean, you certainly are seeing increasing institutional investment, which is coming from institutional decisions that Bitcoin, crypto, other related kinds of topics are good investments. It wouldn't surprise me if we soon see, you know, institutional investment maybe in certain kinds of NFTs, you know, this kind of thing. So there's also at the same time this internal pressure, I think, that companies are taking upon themselves to be responsible stewards of the environment. And the way they're doing that is through expressed ESG metrics that they are self-declaring. So I think that it's important to recognize that a lot of this is coming from the same group of actors. is isn't necessarily just uh, external pressure. It's that they are making decisions themselves that these two things do matter. Uh, and the convergence of them is going to be quite interesting. But the other thing I think is fascinating is how often the discussions about energy wind up just in a place where it's about moral judgment. Hmm. You know, we certainly talk about how certain kinds of energy sort of decide in society, there's a sunk cost to them, and you know, those are okay. But the new ones, well, those are just bad because they're this new mechanism. And why would we go into a new place where we're seeing energy expenditure that we don't feel comfortable with as a society? You know, and we really varies. I don't think we can separate away the, the moral element to this and how so much of the subtext in a lot of these conversations is actually about that. And there's, of course, a moral judgment that attaches to Bitcoin specifically because of some of the way that the community has framed itself. You know, I think some of that is perhaps maybe it was done tongue in cheek, but now it's had some sort of consequences in this space as well. So I think all these things are converging, like you say, at a particular cultural moment where the world is looking to address kind of the, the revolutions that are occurring silently behind the closed doors of the pandemic. And people have had the time to, I think, sort of invest into investigation of a lot of these different areas and see what makes the most sense for our institution and what makes the most sense for our government. And overall, it makes the most sense for our society. So very eager to hear from our guests, because I know that we have two people on today who spent a significant amount of time actually researching these topics and have some, some real hard facts for us. I'm glad you sort of brought that moral issue up, right? Because I think it's a useful way for us to frame the conversation as we get into this. And the, the word that keeps coming up to me is this phrase that people talk about how Bitcoin wastes energy. And of course, that's used by critics, at least, pejoratively. But in fact, some people will talk about that word as being a positive, like it's actually it's the security measure, right? The idea that if you can afford to waste this much energy or this much cost, then you are essentially uh, willing and sort of being held to account for the honesty that you bring to the system. So ultimately, it seems to me that what waste is, is in fact expenditure on security. Now, security is always kind of like a sunk cost. It's a loss leader as opposed to you know, a generator of something positive. And I don't think people would see expenditure on the security of their house to be wasting, right? Or any other form of security. This question about whether or not the right way to frame this debate is not to compare Bitcoin to some other technology, but rather to say the entire monetary system of the world. 
then you start to say, well, is the expenditure on, say, the US military, which is a sort of a backstop to the system around which mm-hmm. that rolls, is mm-hmm. that a waste of, of expenditure or not? And that's the debate, right? So the moral question is ultimately this question of choice about what society do we want? So I think that's a really important framing for this. I do think, though, that there's just this ticking time bomb. And we really need to be able to address that in proactive, constructive ways rather than just like, oh, it's all going to be okay because the system will heal itself. Yeah. Well, you know, as I always say on our show, it's all about context. So if you imagine that Bitcoin is going to topple the financial system and that that's going to be the thing that takes over, then you're doing an apples to apples comparison on what do you include in the financial system and what do you include when you look at Bitcoin? But if you imagine, like I do, that these are going to be sort of parallel systems, at least for quite a long time, then you are looking at additive costs. Then it becomes additive to what? And at what degree is it additive? And what is it replacing? And all these kinds of things become not easy questions. And a lot of this is usual. We joke a lot about statistics, right? It's kind of like, what data are you using to form your opinions? Uh, What is the source of that data? And how do you ensure that you're actually making an accurate comparison across these different systems in the right context? So Totally agree. Really excited to, again, get some some hard facts on this stuff and really delve into these very thorny issues that don't have, in my mind, a very obvious answer. All righty. So let's bring our guests in. Meltem, to you first. This conversation we were just having there about how we frame these things. What's the language that we use and the kind of conceptual framework, I think, is what one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on the show. Because a few months back, you came out with this very interesting, somewhat provocative statement. It was in response, as far as I understand, to a, a tweet rant by software developer Stephen Deal, who had talked about Bitcoin being a giant smoldering Chernobyl sitting at the heart of Silicon Valley. And you came back and said, no, it, Bitcoin makes energy mutable, portable, storable, and transferable by turning it into money. And you made the case, therefore, that Bitcoin is actually a battery. Please explain. (laughs) Sure. And great to be here. Thanks for having this conversation. I'm really excited that we get to talk about this topic. So I want to start by addressing some truths. Truth number one, Bitcoin mining is highly energy intensive. That is a fact. Bitcoin is the only network that I know of that documents its energy use and is extremely transparent about it, which I think makes Bitcoin a very easy target. It's impossible for you to calculate how much energy the banking industry uses, how much energy the US military uses, right? Most industries and most sectors are very opaque about their energy usage. Bitcoin is not. Fact number two, a majority of Bitcoin miners are located in China. That is still a fact. We are working on changing that, and Harry can talk more about that. That is a fact. From that, we then get some assumptions that get made, right? I've stated two facts. And then from that, I think there are some logical fallacies that follow. The logic then goes, Bitcoin miners in China are using dirty coal-based power. That's actually false. And we've proven that to be false through our Bitcoin mining research report. We were the first firm in the industry to do this research. We spoke to all of the miners firsthand and did a bottoms up calculation where we found that 77% of all Bitcoin mining done in China was done with renewable energy that would otherwise not be utilized. So that's fallacy number one. Fallacy number two is Bitcoin mining has an extreme carbon footprint. And that is something that's also provably false. And I think an area we're all working on, people who care about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network, is providing more data to make that extremely transparent. 
And then the last logical sort of transitive property sum that comes out of those four statements, two facts, two ideological fallacies is Bitcoin is bad, which is a moral judgment. So where I just want to sort of frame the conversation, before I worked in Bitcoin, I worked in the energy industry. And in particular, I worked in the US onshore shale gas industry, where basically we took reservoirs of natural resources that were not economical to develop. And through the use of technology and through the result of really high natural gas prices of up to $14 per uh, million cubic feet at an all-time high, we were able to make a resource, right, of energy, pool of energy was, that was normally not economic to monetize and bring to market, monetizable. Now, since then, natural gas prices have collapsed, right? And we've seen the total decimation of the U.S. onshore energy industry as a result. But one of the things I learned in that process of building out that infrastructure is the U.S. energy grid is fundamentally broken. Many energy grids are fundamentally broken. And here's why. The demand for energy throughout the day is highly variable, right? And most power plants produce a steady load of energy. They typically burn hydrocarbons, but they have to produce a steady and reliable load of energy to meet peak demand. So there is a delta between that peak demand you have to meet and the base load that is being consumed at all times. Now, renewables are really interesting. The advent of the renewable energy industry has been a tremendous boon. But most renewables cannot be effectively integrated into the existing energy grid. And as a result, a lot of renewable energy that is not consumed at the point where it's generated cannot be put back into the energy grid or utilized in some productive way. Add on to that the fact that the majority of renewable energy that's produced in our world today at commercial scale is produced in locations where there is no natural industry. For example, Morocco, right? There's tremendous amount of wind energy being produced in Morocco. There's no place to utilize it. So what did they do? They built a transmission line across the Strait of Gibraltar to move that energy from Morocco to Tarifa, Spain, to an aluminum smelting facility. Similarly, right, the Sichuan region of China, where a lot of Bitcoin mining happens, there's a lot of hydropower. And in fact, there was more hydropower wasted last year than the entire annual consumption of the Bitcoin network in terms of energy. So there's a tremendous amount of energy inefficiency in our grid. And my view when I made that comment that Bitcoin is a money battery was this idea that Bitcoin mining could be utilized to take this energy that doesn't have a productive use at certain times and utilize it to create economic value in regions where jobs are scarce, or where there isn't a lot of industry happening. It also can be used, by the way, I think Bitcoin could be a huge catalyst to fueling more investment into the development of renewable energy. And I think that would be a massive positive. So my thesis here was, Michael, for millennia, the only tool humans had to transport energy in terms of their labor and their output across space and time was gold, right? It was a shiny rock that we all decided had value. We stamped the faces of our emperors on it. And gold was really the primary mechanism that we as humans used to transport our value, right? The energy, the fruits of our energy expenditure across space and time. And now we have a way to do that in a digital form, and it's Bitcoin. And so that was really my thesis is Bitcoin is a new way for us to utilize energy and to take that energy and make it productive over vast distances of space and time. Right. So 
that's a more efficient potentially use of energy. It's a way for us to uh, steer it to where it's going in a, in a more effective way. Captured as money, we're now applying it to some economic activity somewhere else. But I'm not saying it's more efficient. That's not a okay. statement I made. Okay. The judgment as to whether or not Bitcoin is a good use of energy is, as Sheila pointed out, that's a moral judgment. We do not have a centrally planned energy economy. We don't have energy police who go around saying you can use energy on this, but not on that. And what people are really advocating for when they're saying Bitcoin is not a good use of energy is having energy police. By the way, Christmas lights are a terrible Mm. use of energy, but nobody's telling you you can't put up your Christmas lights and run them for the entire winter. Idle PlayStations and other gaming devices consume tons of electricity. Yet no one is telling you that you can't have your PlayStation plugged in. Yeah, it's, it's the moral question. The baseline here is that I think we all agree that we do need to move to a world in which energy is largely renewable, that we get to a point where greenhouse gas emissions are lower. So my point was simply that at the end of the day, whether you call it efficient or not, what you're talking about is this capacity to overcome, I suppose, the tyranny of distance between places like Morocco, as you described, that are further away. What I'd like to know is how do we ensure, though, that the energy that is used for that purpose is, is going to be renewable because there is heavily subsidized electricity production in Venezuela that's terribly dirty, yeah. which could be another way to take that and present it somewhere else. So this is the next point, that what role do investment funds themselves play in this? Because the news this week that Acre ASA has got this new fund, CT, maybe you could talk about that as well. Yeah, we can talk about CT. And, and I want to bring Harry into this conversation. But the last point I'll make here, Michael, that I think is really important is, is look, at the end of the day, what Bitcoin does is it puts a price on your ability to find the lowest possible cost source of energy, right? So as a Bitcoin miner, you are continually incentivized to seek out the lowest cost of energy possible because your only two inputs to Bitcoin mining, if we really, really simplify it, are the CapEx, which is what you spend to purchase ASICs or hardware, and your electricity costs, which is what it costs to operate that hardware. Now, if you are a Bitcoin miner, your only goal in life is to maximize profits. That's really your incentive. And so what's been really interesting to observe is Bitcoin mining naturally creates market dynamics that make it very, very attractive to Bitcoin miners to go and seek out very low cost or no cost energy. And typically that is renewables. And so I think really what I want to try to dispel here, I don't need to have an argument about whether or not Bitcoin is a good use of energy. I want to dispel two myths. One myth is that energy is finite because it's not, right? Our ability to capture energy is limited because of underinvestment. But energy is really not finite. And as humans, we consume a tremendous amount of energy. These are computers. What we're doing right now is tremendously consumptive of energy. So I think I just want to stay away from that argument. Like all things consume energy and the market will dictate what energy gets spent on. But I also want to point out, and really what I want to try to emphasize in this conversation today is that Bitcoin and ESG mandates are not incompatible. And in fact, I think they're highly complementary. And that's really, I think, the important point we need to get across and that Acre made in their letter when they announced the launch of CT. And I think it's important to note that Acre is traditionally an oil and gas infrastructure business, right? And again, what's really interesting, Michael, is as governments around the world introduce sustainability mandates, 
carbon taxes, right? Already in Vancouver, we see the government contemplating a massive tax hike uh, for carbon tax. And what that's leading to is people looking at different ways to monetize wasted energy, to mine Bitcoin um, and do all sorts of interesting things in the Bitcoin space. So I just think it's really important to highlight that ESG mandates and Bitcoin are not incompatible. We're writing a paper on that at CoinShares now, obviously going to share it um, once that's ready. And sustainability and Bitcoin are not incompatible at all. So Harry, would love to hear from you on this. I mean, obviously you spent a lot of time thinking about this. Tell us about Grid, Grid's philosophy and approach to the questions and problems we've been talking about. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, you and Michael, I, I'm, I'm huge fans. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come in and talk with you. So what we do at Grid is super, super simple. We mine as much Bitcoin as we possibly can with an eye towards keeping as much of it on the backside as we can from there. We don't host, we don't do all this, all this kind of other stuff that's out there in the mining world. We thought that that kind of introduces a misalignment of incentives. And so we, we consider ourselves a, a vertically integrated purpose-built Bitcoin miner. And we've got a portfolio of facilities that are operational at this point and a really exciting pipeline of additional sites that are at various stages of development. We didn't enter this industry with an eye towards becoming a, you know, a renewable operator. We didn't think that that was sort of our edge. But what we quickly found through conversations with, you know, with everybody from very, very large you know, federal energy producers in the US to very small hydro dams that are run by you know, mom and pop that can't afford upgrades to their turbine, is that everybody is looking for revenue enhancement strategies that will support sort of the, the growth and the resilience of the, the energy that they're producing, and that the need for those enhancement strategies are particularly acute when you start to look at renewable generation. Those conversations at this point for us are inbound. You know, I spend less time reaching out to energy producers than energy producers spend time reaching out to me. And that's a huge change. You know, maybe some of that is sort of the, the emergence of Bitcoin as a bit more of a, a mainstream asset. I think that, I think, you know, I say all the time that, you know, Bitcoin does a lot of the heavy lifting for us, but they're reaching out to us because they do not know how to generate the revenues against the, the energy that, that they're going to be producing, regardless of the market dynamics that they face. And so that means that, I spend the majority of my days on the phone with, you know, nuclear plant operators, wind portfolio managers, hydro dams at, at every level of, of size. And they're looking to work with us to make sure that the renewables they're producing are resilient economic features of the broader economy. And so they really see this as a strategic opportunity to build out their portfolio. And, and I'm going to just speak to one example for a moment, which is that there was a hydro portfolio looking to you know, potentially acquire another dam, another asset. The decision for them to move forward with that acquisition and portfolio expansion was predicated on the knowledge that they'd be able to work with us to monetize that power quickly and efficiently. So the idea that Bitcoin is this huge additive component for renewable operators, you know, that's not happening in research papers and in kind of the, the out in the ether. Like that's happening boots on the ground. You know, we as a mining business, yeah, we, we deal with Bitcoin and we're a technology company, but we're blue collar. Like we love building stuff and plugging stuff in and, and doing electrical engineering. And like, you know, we look a lot more like a bricks and sticks business than we look like something coming out of, out of San Francisco or Silicon Valley. Um, and so, you know, we're, we are really close to these producers and they need us. They're really looking to this industry to sustain growth. Yeah, you know, I think this incentives conversation is so interesting because of course the last thing a Bitcoin miner wants to do is compete with the entire automotive industry, for example, you know, 
uh, for sources of energy that are more historically rooted, it is relatively actually quite easy, I would say, to swap out the source of energy for something that is a greener form of energy in this particular context. And there's less competition, depending where you are. It's obviously very context dependent. Uh, so it's, it's very logical that you would see a lot of movement by miners towards this uh, direction. I just wanted to add in a, another sort of layer onto what Harry's saying and what you're alluding to, Sheila. One piece of pushback that I get often when I talk about Bitcoin primarily utilizing renewables is, well, doesn't that mean that demand doesn't just get displaced and go to other fossil fuel heavy energy? And here's the reality, right? I think there's this misconception. So there are all of these energy providers that market to retail consumers, and this is like the great sustainability scam, I call it. So there are all these power companies who market to retail and say like, hey, buy your clean energy. Yes, it's five cents more expensive than your existing energy provider, but we're powered by renewables. And the reality is this, on the existing energy grid, there's no separation between clean or dirty sources of energy. They're all electrons. They get commingled together. And these companies that claim to provide a renewable energy really, you know, maybe 5 to 10% of their energy portfolio is renewables, but it's the same electrons, right? So I think what's important to understand for people who don't understand how the energy grid functions is everyone is drawing from the same pool of electrons that are drawn from the same grid. All demand is drawn from the same grid. Now, what's interesting is typically renewables, again, are not plugged into this same grid, right? Again, these loads are variable. In a lot of instances, they're located in regions where maybe it's not economical or feasible to plug these energy generation facilities into the grid. And so what's really interesting is typically the Bitcoin mining that's happening, and Harry could probably speak more about this, is going to be co-located with these facilities. And we've actually observed patterns of quote-unquote migratory mining, where we actually see Bitcoin miners moving from location to location to capitalize on the opportunity to access and utilize typically stranded renewables. So I think it's really, really important <laughs> to just understand that, that context. What we're doing here is hydropower, for example. You can't build it wherever you want. You can't pick up the Hoover Dam and move it 100 miles west, right? It, it is where it is. Same thing with geothermal, same thing with solar, same thing with wind. And so again, what we have here is an opportunity to take abundant sources of energy and utilize them in productive ways that do not compete with existing energy demand. And I think that's just important to include because I think there is this misconception where people are like, well, wait a minute, you're using renewables, that means other people can't use those electrons. And it's like, no, 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 these electrons would go unused. So I just, I want to make that point because yeah. again, there's so many misconceptions here. Well, it sounds like you're also saying that Bitcoin mining is actually incentivizing an acceleration of green energy development. So Harry, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. I want to set sort of a one piece of background relative to that point, which I think Melton spoke to specifically, which is just that there, there's some business model ideas within mining that I think are not, I don't want to say common knowledge, and maybe that's our fault for being a, a pretty a pretty close to the vest kind of community uh, <laughs> historically. But, you know, but I think it's important to understand, you know, that what Bitcoin miners are able to do is deliver a flexible load consumer. And this is a critically important piece of the business model and the value proposition that we represent to our energy partners 
when you, you know, you think of the, of the grid, you know, and the grid is this amorphous thing. There's actually many grids within the US, within Canada and, and all over the world. They're very localized because when you try to move energy a really far distance, there's this concept of loss factor. So the further you move it, the less you get. Uh, and the less efficiency you're able to deliver between the energy generator and the energy consumer. So there's a balkanization. That's of, so of wasteful, this. Harry. So wasteful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's actual waste. That's just like you lose it on the line. Then it's then it's really wasted. Not even a, a moral judgment. There's this proximity effect where you know when you think of the investment in delivering energy, a tremendous amount of, of that capital investment from the energy grid goes into the transmission lines. And so if you're able to reduce the need for further distance and further transmission, you're actually able to return significantly more capital to the energy generator, who is then in turn able to make much larger investments in the expansion of renewable processes, in better service, in, in, all, in lower pricing, in all of these different ways. So being able to deliver improved economics to an energy producer is actually this very multifaceted you know, value add you know, to the human species which I think Bitcoin miners are really uniquely positioned to deliver. I want to double down one more time on this idea of peak load and sort of base load, because I think it's another thing that like, needs to be introduced to the vocabulary of this entire conversation at, at sort of a more fundamental level. Let's just think back a few years to the polar vortex that we saw when everyone I knew, you know, basically from, you know, from Long Island to Minnesota to San Francisco and Oregon, you know, everybody's running their heat. You know, no, nobody was willing to suffer through, yep. suffer through that thing without heat. And so you're going to basically see decade-long peak in energy consumption. What we don't really spend time thinking about is that that multi-decade or maybe single-decade peak, the entire grid is designed to deliver at that peak level. Right. Even though we only saw that height of need for usage for a few days over a decade. And so we design for this peak use level um, but we don't consume at the peak use level, but we have to sort of have that edge case in mind when the engineering work gets done. And so what we have this huge opportunity to do now is introduce a flexible load consumer, which is, which is grid, which is others mining Bitcoin, who are able to deliver positive economic returns to that level of redundancy that's made available to everybody. And, and you know, again, I think it's really worth hitting on that consuming energy is not a bad thing. Consuming energy is tightly correlated to the incredibly high quality of life that we all get to enjoy and that we want to continue to enjoy. So, you know, when I get into some of these energy conversations, you know, I really try to treat my perspective as a quality of life maximalist rather than a consumption minimalist and trying to design a system that's able to deliver on that promise of a bright future. And I think we've seen it in the conversations with the energy partners. We feel that there's this very clear sort of market microstructure phenomenon within the energy grid that we're able to improve upon. And we think that it's, it's this massive tailwind. They want to invest in renewables. They just need a business case to be able to do so. And we deliver that business case. This is where I wanted the conversation to go, right? So this role, this edge case, this incentivizing, and the fact that it's, a, it's additive. This concept that by the economics of mining being what it is, it can actually be a driver of change, not only to your earlier point about bringing it to and encouraging and incentivizing the acceleration of, of renewable energy. But this really complex question of how the grid itself, this otherwise centrally managed thing, becomes a more efficient system. You use the word system, which I think is an important one for us to think about as this whole thing works, because it's not just about what's generated, it's what's consumed and when and how. So I've always been interested in the, the deal that Layer 1 had, for example, to help manage the peaks and troughs in that, I think it was Western Texas, obviously not 
nearly efficient enough to resolve Texas's recent problems. But nonetheless, you know, an interesting idea that you've got this whole duck curve problem when it comes to, to solar energy in particular, mm. where it's all there in the middle of the day and not. But one thing I will add, Michael, on the Texas matter, right, you brought up this recent ice storm in Texas. Actually, during that event, there were a number of Bitcoin miners who had facilities in Texas who were able to turn off their machines for a few days and to contribute energy back to the grid, right? And this is why I love calling Bitcoin a money battery. It does actually flow two ways. When energy is not being utilized, we can take it and utilize it to generate Bitcoin. And when that energy is needed, we can turn off those facilities and that energy can flow back to other productive uses on the grid. And it speaks specifically to that system idea, right? Like the timing and use of consumption. Where I want to go with this next, though, is, is to take that and say, okay, it's all very well. This is great. We got all the right incentives in place. But as I said at the beginning, we don't have much time. And therefore, I do think that governance, not necessarily governments, but I would say governments and, and I would say corporate and institutional governance actually has a really critical role. Melton, you said at the beginning that you know, ESG is not incompatible at all with this. But it seems to me that the way we are going to really accelerate this is to have sort of policies in place that actually lead us down this path more deliberately. I'm going to run a clip because here's Kevin O'Leary, high profile investor, talking about something that sounded at the first a little bit kind of confusing that you would be able to pick which Bitcoin you want to buy. But let's hear what he has to say. And we'll just take the conversation up from there. In most cases of the large institutions that I talk to, they have two committees to concern themselves with regarding crypto. Before it even gets to the investment committee, which would decide on an allocation, it has to go through the sustainability committee because there's a whole new metric around the concerns people have around sustainability, about the origin of the coin. Was it mined in China? Is it mined in a country that's under tariff or restrictions with the U.S. government? All of these new Providence concerns, which were not on anybody's mind when crypto was simply the purvey of the hedge fund or the retail investor, now it has to have a new standard. And now that standard is, where did it come from? How was it mined? Was it mined sustainably? How do I know I'm not supporting mining in a country where human rights are abused, like China? All of these issues are at the fore at the institutional client. So what I'm doing, because I'm very concerned that I know where my coin came from, is I'm starting to invest in miners themselves so that I can have a portion of their output and know that my coin is clean. Where I thought he was going at first sounded like pretty something that would be almost dystopian from a Bitcoin perspective, because you would have this clean coins and dirty coins and the whole fungibility thing would be out the window. You'd have this traceability. But he ends up making, coming to a point where he says, where I'm going to get my coins from is investing in miners that I know of. And so it actually ends up being quite a proactive thing that could be done. Nonetheless, The key point is that these are the sorts of conversations that are happening in boardrooms right now. Meltem, do we end up throwing the baby out with bathwater? Because really, Bitcoin's fungibility is crucial and distinguishing between coins strikes me as very destructive. Yeah, so (laughs) I have a lot of things to say about that clip. So number one, this conversation around knowing the source of your Bitcoin. There have been a lot of conversations around green Bitcoin. Again, I lived through the last ESG investing craze, right, where people slapped green on a lot of things. And as I alluded to, just like an electron, a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. Your TV doesn't care whether the electron came from wind power or from a coal-fired power plant or from a nuclear plant. Like Your TV does not care. An electron is an electron is an electron. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. 
When we're talking about sustainably mined Bitcoin or green Bitcoin, that's effectively meaningless. If investors want to pay a premium for a feel-good sort of added sort of tag or marketing label that we put on something, like that's up to the individual. But again, the majority of Bitcoin is already mined using sustainable energy. The other point that was made that I think is a little bit concerning is where the, the Bitcoin was mined. Most of the things we consume are made in China. I find it interesting that someone standing on television who is probably using hardware devices made in China, i.e. an iPhone, an um, Apple laptop, his clothing was probably made in China. Probably 90% of the things Kevin O'Leary owns are made in China. I think it's very odd to single out Bitcoin as being mined in China when you're already consuming so much product that's made in China. Like all of our telecommunications hardware is made in China. All of it. It's a fundamental security concern for the United States of America that so much of the electronic components that we consume and so much of the electronic goods that we utilize are produced in China, yet nobody's talking about that. So I find it very interesting that this China narrative keeps coming up. Now, I think the antidote to this is, as Harry expressed, and I think one of the biggest challenges is, yes, Bitcoin is very transparent about its energy consumption. But Bitcoin mining has historically been notoriously opaque. Because if you're a Bitcoin miner, you want to be very, very uh, sort of secretive about your economics and where you're mining your Bitcoin and, and the economics of that operation, because that's proprietary. And you don't want other people to get access to your really low-cost, sustainable power. So I think one of the big efforts that's underway, Harry and I are, are both investors in and, and board members of a company called Compass Mining that's trying to bring more visibility to where hash rate's located. And we're also encouraging people to mine onshore in North America. I think there are a number of firms who are really focused on bringing more uh, Bitcoin mining to North America. But, but at the end of the day, you know, our global supply chain is, as you articulated earlier, Michael, just like our energy grid is a complex dynamic system. And we use components that come from all over the world in our manufacturing processes. And we don't have conversations about the fact that our iPhones are made in, in China or our cars are made in China. Those conversations never come up. So I think as Bitcoin starts to establish its role in the broader global ecosystem and not just in finance, but in sort of the compute and connectivity space, I think we also need to recognize that Bitcoin in and of itself is a really complex dynamic system. Some of the dynamics of Bitcoin are shifting, but in order for North America to be a viable location for Bitcoin miners, we need to see more investment in renewables in North America. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that historically, the United States has not prioritized investment in renewables. And the whole point Harry and I are making here is let's utilize Bitcoin as a way to make North America an absolutely fantastic place to mine Bitcoin by encouraging people to invest in renewables, power generation in the United States, and to then co-locate Bitcoin mining facilities with this renewable energy. It's not going to happen by me going on TV and talking about China and Bitcoin. It's going to happen by people like Harry, myself, and others in this industry doing the hard work to capitalize these businesses, to source investment from them, from people like this, and we need to put some dollars on the table. That will produce results and we need policy changes. And so I think it's really, really important to recognize that this doesn't happen on its own. People need to put their money where their mouth is. So if you want to see more Bitcoin mining happening in North America with renewables, 
give us a call. We're happy to help you allocate your dollars to that. Yeah, it certainly seems to me that if the goal is to get more greenly mined Bitcoin, then then really the investment ought to be made in green mining companies, right? Like like the ones who are doing that in a more sustainable way, like Greta is doing here, rather than and just to be fair to Kevin, that's kind of what he said he was doing. I think that's what I was going to say. I think I think that's where he got to, because as opposed to sort of like trying to trace every single Bitcoin that you own and figure out the origin of where it might have come from or whatnot. It's, you know, let's make the entire industry uh, greener. And so I think it's really about using Bitcoin almost as a sword and a shield, right? To say, like, we can actually provide this avenue and this motivation and really create strong and hard and tangible incentives for, to your point, Melton, and to the points you've made, Harry, uh, and to the points I think, to be fair, Kevin made, you know, let's make this transition happen. Like, let's really start focusing in this way. Curious here if you have any comments you want to add there, and then I want to change us a little bit to talking about geography uh, beyond China. But Harry, first over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think the last 25% of Kevin's point is, is exactly right. At the end of the day, my, my job is to win the business Darwin competition of building the fittest business that I possibly can and generate you know, Bitcoin at, at extremely high margins and, you know, and expand our footprint and you know, grow what we do. And that's why we're focused is we think we have this moment in front of us to build a, a massive multi-generationally leading business within the Bitcoin and energy spaces. It's what we get up for every morning to do. At the end of the day, like the great part is I don't have to compromise on the business or on the mission because for mining for us, like doing well is doing good. There is no separation. I think it's such a powerful point for people to understand, Harry, because the incentives really are, they're not kind of aligned. They are actually directly aligned on this topic. So oh, topic. yeah. This is not like a fig leaf for like, like what, we're, what <laughs> yeah. we're working on. This is like the core of our business is sourcing, you know, the best energy resources in the world, working with, you know, globally dominant operators on the energy side and building the backbone of the financial system that, that has an opportunity to be the leader of the future. It's worth hitting just, just one more time again that like Bitcoin's value propositions, if they mean something for you it personally or for your business, for your portfolio as an investor, you know, whatever role you play, this energy consumption that we participate in is core to delivering on those value propositions you know, that Bitcoin promises. Hard cap supply only works if we consume this energy and ensure transaction finality. We protect the censorship resistant behavior that Alex Gladstein and the Human Rights Foundation are shining the spotlight on beautiful stories of tragic monetary regimes and, and the role that Bitcoin plays doing good all over the world. We have to consume this energy to deliver on these promises. And that's what we're here to do. And we get you know, the great privilege of getting to do that in a renewable and sustainable way without compromising on the business. So let's talk about geography a bit. So one of the reasons that Bitcoin mining is where it is, and it's all over the world, you know, it's in many different parts of the world, but it's in places that are oftentimes a bit remote. And there are reasons for that, that Harry, I'd love to have you comment on. Uh, but I'm also curious, Ross Stevens recently wrote an argument, a piece talking about how the fact that Bitcoin mining is not really geographically bound means that there is this chance for remote communities that might have abundant renewable solar or whatever it is to really uh, go big and develop those sources and maybe even provide financial resources and create an industry around this in certain remote parts of the world. So curious to get your thoughts on the geography question as a general matter, but also on this idea that with the transfer that we can do that you both have spoken about, there's a chance here for some communities that maybe have been a little left behind by the digital economy to suddenly have uh, some stake in it. I would go further and say that it's not just the digital economy that's left them behind, it's the global economy. 
Yeah. Whether I generate a, a Bitcoin in US, in Canada, in you know, rural India, or in South America, that revenue stream is denominated in Satoshis, no matter where it comes from. The $2 a day wage that gets paid in, in some countries, that's not true anymore in a Bitcoin denominated world. Those mining revenues get paid out irrespective of location. And we think that that's a really powerful democratizing force. Let's set that aside for a moment. You know, the second piece is, is really about population centers and the centers of commerce and industry that crop up around abundant natural resources. Why did the U.S. thrive in the ways that it did, you know, between the 1700s and the mid-1900s? Because we've got two huge oceans on each side, haven't had to fight very many wars, and we've got a tremendous abundance of natural resources. There's no doubt about it that those are fundamental advantages. Um, and we can take that concept and localize it now where any place that has an abundance of resources, it's not about having an ocean. Now it's about having unique access to solar. Now it's about having the political will to develop nuclear and mass. Now it's about having access to waterways that's going to turn a turbine that doesn't care where it is. And there's a reason to put the turbine there for the first time in history. There are these really fascinating you know, technology-enabled unlocks that Bitcoin mining serves to achieve I'm really excited to see what it's going to do. We hope to be the, the partner of choice to develop some of that mining there. But I think that the localization effect is very real and really exciting. You know, Ross is exactly right on that. I want to just extend that one point further and talk about the concept of national security in the context of this development. So I think, Sheila, you raise a really great point that historically, the concept of perimeter, whether it's regulatory perimeter or national security perimeter, has been defined by physical borders. We no longer live in that world. And I think the challenges related to the regulation of Bitcoin and this new digital economy are highlighting that. How do you regulate something which has no physical jurisdiction? Bitcoin has no physical jurisdiction. People who hold Bitcoin or operate Bitcoin businesses have physical jurisdiction and maybe use that as sort of the guiding principle, as we've seen implemented very poorly with a bit license, but perhaps implemented well with what Switzerland has done, um, right? They're very different approaches. But at the end of the day, I do think as the Bitcoin network grows and as this relationship between energy infrastructure and Bitcoin and sustainability mandates becomes more defined and more readily apparent through the work we're doing and through data that we're hoping to make more transparent as an industry, I do think what nation states will start to realize is investing in not only Bitcoin infrastructure, but general compute and connectivity infrastructure is a core matter of national security. You see this in the United States with more and more bills being introduced to provide tax subsidies to data centers and semiconductor producers, but I think it will inevitably extend into financial cybersecurity, right? Our financial systems are the most important systems to preserving our economic position, right, and to defending our economy. And so Bitcoin is this beautiful, really resilient financial network that is extremely secure. It's the most secure financial network in the world. And so I think, again, to me, it's just sort of inevitable that nation states who start to understand Bitcoin's role in the broader economy and the importance of not just Bitcoin, but general financial compute and connectivity will realize that they need to invest in this infrastructure as a matter of national security. And I think that's a really important linkage to make 
because it really highlights this idea, I think that Michael, you raised at the start, that security has a cost. And the security and resilience of our financial systems and of the transactional systems we use, and even of, you know, everything is becoming money, everything is becoming finance. We see that with NFTs, right? The digital infrastructure that supports all of this compute and connectivity is highly insecure. These supply chains are highly insecure. So I think I'm very excited about this conversation really opening up. I know um, the Center for American Security, CNAS, is doing a great series of discussions on cryptocurrencies and digital infrastructure. Sheila, I know the WEF has a great initiative underway around financial cybersecurity and its growing importance. But I think this really is going to be predominant narrative over the next decade. And what do you need to operate a digital financial system? You need energy. You need semiconductors (laughs) and you need a skilled labor force, right? And that's exactly what Bitcoin consumes. Bitcoin consumes electricity and silicon in the form of ASICs to develop a highly profitable global financial industry. And so I think that's tremendously exciting. And it's equal playing ground, Sheila. That's the beautiful thing. Bitcoin doesn't discriminate based on your location. All righty. So that's all we have time for. I, I was just picking up on those last comments from Melton. And I was thinking like, once again, as so often is the case, Sheila, as we get into these things, there's another rabbit hole that we could go down. Melton talked about security, nation states, the jurisdictionlessness of Bitcoin, which I think is fascinating because whatever decisions are going to be made about the future, whether they're about what financial system we have to take. And I love the fact that Harry talked about the fact that that is the main point here, that you're building a resilient financial system of the future. So whatever decisions are made by societies with regards to that and to their energy needs kind of come together around this, but it's going to require people to think outside the box from, from getting away from this idea of nation states as being something that you can control within its boundaries. And Bitcoin literally is not. Loads more that we could have done with. One thing I just want to do as, as a wrap though here is to say, you know, for listeners, Engage in the thought experiment. Like, what if instead of taking a defensive posture towards Bitcoin, oh, it's encroaching on X, Y, and Z, or oh, it's using this kind of energy at the expense of other sorts of things? What if instead we took kind of a more positive thought experiment around it and said, what are the opportunities that Bitcoin presents in the energy space? And really start to explore some of those. And our two guests today have done research, as they noted, on this topic. So you can actually arm yourself with some facts and kind of indulge in that line of thinking that is equally important for us to consider and look at from all angles here. I couldn't have wrapped it up any better than that. All right, Sheila, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next time, this is Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Meltem Demirs, and Harry Sudok. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musel, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.